This summer we're going through the letter to the Thessalonians and we're up to chapter 2. So start by reading um, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. I'd call your attention to the, the yellow handout if that can be helpful. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of God for his people. Thanks be to God. So the, the topic today is that when it comes to sharing our faith in Christ or doing the work of ministry, the work of the kingdom that he gives to each of us to do, God is concerned with our methods and our motives as we do the work of, of sharing Christ. Have you ever been tricked or manipulated by a salesman and you felt afterwards like, oh, I got, I got taken by that one. Um, we did a, a missions trip in Czech Republic and, and I, afterwards I took a few of us, Katie was with me and, and so was a couple of young adults. And we, we took a couple days in Rome just for the fun of it. And, um, I remember we were near the Colosseum and we went to the, see the Arch of Constantine, which is right next to the Colosseum. And a guy engaged us in conversation. Um, he was from Africa and he kind of got into it talking about, oh, how he loves to, to make connections with people from other countries. And, and um, he was very genuine and friendly and, you know, asked about our families. He showed us pictures of his kids and, it, you know, it was just an interesting conversation. And, and, and then he, as it went on, he, he pulled out these bracelets and he said, I have a gift for you as a sign for my country. And, and then he started kind of not just handing us the gifts, but like, like the, the young ladies, he was putting it on him, like kind of very, and that, that's when, oh, I started to see it, right? The, you know, but it was kind of too late. We were already engaged. And, and so he says, oh, now that I've given you these gifts, won't you give me a little something for our, uh, you know, for my family back home? And, 
And so the one young guy didn't have any small change and gave him a 20 euro and the guy just pocketed that. And I think we all gave him a couple euros, but basically, you know, we were scammed into buying something we didn't ask for. Right. He was good. I mean, he was really good. Like it, I, I only realized what was going on at the end and tried to move people away. And, and he says, Oh, aren't we friends? You know? And, um, but I was a little embarrassed for, for being taken in truthfully and it's okay. The, it, it's a nice little bracelet. This is Katie's. You can ask her to see it when we're, we're, we're done. But, um, I guess it was worth a couple euros in the end. Um, but when, when it comes to doing ministry and whether that's just sharing with someone one-on-one, whether that is, uh, teaching kids in junior church or VBS whether it's lead in youth group, whether it's, it's whatever ministry God has given you to do, our hope is to point people to believe in Jesus. But recognize God is not just looking for results. He cares about the way our methods that we do that work. And he cares even about the motives for what leads us to do it. So that's what we're looking at in our passage. Paul is talking about how he conducted his ministry in the midst of the Thessalonian believers, how he had shared Jesus with them, shared, brought the gospel to them, and he cites you know, things he didn't do, did do and did not do. And, and what I think Paul's reason for sharing this is that he wants the, the Thessalonians to know that their, their, their faith in Christ did not come as a result of them being tricked or or misled that they can believe that they, they are now believers because God did a work in their life. He wants them to have confidence in their own relationship with God. So he's saying, I didn't do anything that would have snuck you in. You, God was at work in you. He was speaking to you and you made that step into faith. So let's see what Paul says. As we go through it, we're going to see ways in which we can do it wrong. Right? You ever hear someone says, oh, you can't do this wrong. Well, when it comes to ministry, you can. And so what are some ways it can go wrong? And it, so I'm just, we're just going to walk through the passage and then talk about how, that, how it applies to us. For it starts off, it says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Meaning it, it bore fruit. It had results in their lives. And the truth is, though, it might not have, right? When you are engaging people with Christ, when you are doing work in ministry, you don't know for sure whether it's going to have a fruitful result because you're working with people and people are individuals and they get a choice, right? It's possible you will do everything right and they just won't be interested. And it's okay to know that going in, right? To be prepared. We don't want to base our own self-esteem on how people respond. It may not have anything to do with us. Jesus prepared his disciples for that when he sent them out town to town. He says, if you go to a town and they're not interested in your message, that's okay. Just go to the next town, right? And he, and he told them, you know, go and at the edge of town and then just wipe the dust off your feet. Just, just as a way, don't let their rejection of the message come upon you. You know, 
just just go to the next town. And so that's sometimes what happens is we got to know that um, we're, we're trusting the results to God. It's not about us. Verse 2 talks about how we had already suffered and been treated shamefully at Philippi, as you know. And yet we had boldness to uh, in our God to declare to you the gospel. You see, as Paul has traveling through Macedon, the first city he was at was Philippi, and he faced a lot of opposition. In fact, he was thrown in prison for a night, beaten, flogged severely, and just mistreated and had to leave the city quickly. Now think about it from Paul's perspective. All right, you just had that in Philippi. What are you going to do now in this next city? Are you going to tone it down? He says, no. We, we proclaimed you the gospel of God with boldness. We did not let that prior opposition stop us from doing what God has called us to do. When we go into serving God in whatever way, we have to trust in his protection. We have to seek his, his leading and guidance. And we have to come with, with steadfastness and boldness. All right, we have to have a confidence that comes from knowing that this is real, that God has spoken, and that the good news of Jesus is worth it If in the end. Moving on to verse 3, he says, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So note that does not the, the message they give does not come from error or impurity. People will challenge what we say. We'll say things and they'll say, well, that's wrong. I don't agree with that. And we, it's important we've thought through our, our faith and beliefs enough to have confidence. Um, so sometimes they'll say it's not true. I think in more recent days, they'll just say that's evil, right? They, they don't actually engage with what's true and what's not. It's simply, oh, that's in the postmodern thing. People don't even know that there is a truth. And they'll say, well, that's, that's a, a racist or sexist or whatever. You know, they'll just write off whatever you're, you're teaching without giving it thought. Be prepared that we will face challenged. And when we get objections, don't respond defensively or get angry. Um, in fact, try to listen closely. As much as they're able to engage with the truth, listen to what they have to say. Maybe they'll make a valid point and you can respond. Or maybe they're, maybe what they're objecting to is something completely that, oh, I don't agree with that either. You know, that happens a lot. They, they have a picture of what Christianity is and it's all wrong. And you can help clarify if you're willing to listen to them and not respond with, with anger or, or defensiveness. And if they ask questions you don't know, just simply say, I, I need time to think about that. Um, that, that's a, that's a interesting question I've not heard before. Can I, can, can we talk about that part at another time? And, and then he says also, Paul says, or any attempt to deceive, we do not need to stretch the truth. We do not need to pretend we have confidence about things we're not sure of. We don't make stuff up to try to bolster our faith. We're not there to win an argument. That's where we can go wrong. We're so intent on winning the argument, right? We're going to win this person to Jesus. And that's not how it works. It's about God doing a work in their hearts, not us proving ourselves right somehow. 
We don't need to sell people, sell Jesus to people. Jesus, through the Spirit, will bring conviction and will speak into their hearts. That's ultimately what needs to happen for them to come to faith. It's not about us. Verse 4. He goes on to say, We have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel message. And so we speak. How could we not speak? Right? How, how could God gave us the greatest news and the greatest message ever? How could we not open, seek opportunities and, and, and take open doors when those opportunities arise to let people know the goodness of Jesus? So, but then it goes on to say, God, the, we, we're trying to please God who tests our heart. We will be tested. How will God test us? Mostly he'll allow us to be challenged, right? He, 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 God tests us by seeing what we do when things get difficult. When it's easy, and I don't know if you ever watched some of those Christian movies where, I mean, they're great movies, they're encouraging. I, I just love how in the end, at the end of the movie, like everyone's praying to receive Jesus in their life. I, I've not experienced too many times like that, truthfully. A lot of times things happen only difficultly or with messy. You know, it's never that simple. What God wants to know is what will we do when we are face those kind of difficulties? Will we be steadfast and faithful and keep going? Will we keep doing the work of ministry, the work he calls us to, even when it gets tough and it's not simple? That's God testing us. What will God test us? What will God test? He will test our methods and our motives. So Paul goes on to say what he doesn't do. He says, we never came with words of flattery, right? Telling people, to flatter people is to tell them what they want to hear so they'll respond in a way. We're not to try to manipulate people into to accepting Jesus or um, use these methods, and neither do we put pressure on people to get them to say yes. God wants people to freely choose him. Um, when I was doing youth ministry in a small town, Cambridge, Ohio, they had a three-day revival, and... Um, and they wanted to try to reach the whole town. And, and all the churches came together. It was really kind of neat in a sense of how various churches came together to work on a project. And it was kind of um, in the mold of a Billy Graham type thing. There's, there's an evangelist who was going to come and speak. and it was, But it was a bit old school. And so one night was devoted to the youth. And, uh, and because I was a youth ministry person in town, I got to sit on the stage. And uh, they, they kind of had that set up. And I remember watching, and the one youth group, um, mostly it was my the Baptist kids, so they were also involved in the group I was running. And um, they were all Christian kids, except they'd, they'd convinced their one friend to come to this revival. And these were good kids, right? They, they were going to do, you know, they were told they got to reach their friends. So they all, all six of them managed to convince their one friend to come. And uh, so and I remember that friend was a football player. And, uh, and when the time came for the altar call, I, it looked like they were literally dragging him up to the stage. Like they were going to get him saved, whether he liked it or not. And, 
And so they all, all of them came, the whole group of, of kids with this one kid who wasn't a church kid. And, and the, the organizers of the, the revival loved it because they saw, oh, look at all these teenagers. They're all accepting Jesus. And like, I knew actually these kids are all Christians except one of them. And so the one kid did accept Jesus and I'm sure God did a work through it. But truthfully, I never saw him in youth group or anything like it again. So I, I do wonder, I don't think it actually works when we, we try to pressure. But I, I, I'll say I love their enthusiasm. I love the boldness. But God wants people to say yes because the Lord is doing a work in their heart. Jesus is pretty upfront. He didn't really try hard to talk people into following him. Right? In fact, sometimes he tried to talk people out of following him. He says, you know, if, if you're going to build a building, make sure you have enough to build the whole building. It looks pretty stupid if you build half of it and then leave it go. Like that was basically one of his parables. And he was talking about, if you're going to follow me, decide whether you're in or not. Yeah, don't start something you're not going to finish, is what Jesus said. So, so moving on. Um, Paul also talks about not having a pretext for greed. Um, so now we're moving not just from our methods, how we reach people, but our motives. What's our heart motive for wanting to see people respond to the message? And he says it's possible that there will be a, a greed involved. Greed is insidious. That's a great vocabulary word, right? It means it's kind of a, it's sneaky in its evil. It's insidious. I don't think too many, if any, go into ministry, I'm thinking especially paid professional ministry, with the idea that I'm going to get rich, right? I'm going to go preach Jesus so that I become a wealthy man. They start off serving the Lord because they want to serve the Lord. But sometimes when you're successful and that brings blessing and, and that, you get, get caught up in seeking ever more blessings, ever more luxuries. And we've seen ministries that begin operating more for their financial side of it. They start to orient their teaching and their work towards bringing in the finances rather than having an honest heart for God. And, and Jesus says, be, you know, beware that you cannot serve two masters. If you start serving money, you're no longer serving the Lord. Beware, you can only serve one master at a time. So decide, are you serving the Lord or are you about money? The thing I like to say to myself, and this is what Jesus said to his disciples when he sent them off to preach. He says, freely you have received, freely give. As much as possible, that attitude, freely give. Moving on to verse 6. Talks about another motive that could be. It says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Another common wrong motive is to, to seek glory and note, noteworthy and to be respected because you're such a great evangelist. You know, you want to be known in a certain way. And, well, I've, I've led this number of people to the Lord in my, my ministry. How about you? And, and there becomes this almost this competition 
to display how, how effective you are and an evangelist. Jesus talked about the, the hypocrites who, who love to pray standing in the street corners to be seen by men, right? To be, to be gain noteworthiness or respect through our ministry. That's another wrong motive. And, and when it comes to um, this, it, it's simply pride. You're using the ministry service to, to the Lord to build up your own pride. First John 2 says there's three dangers that can lead us astray. Lust of the eyes, which is greed. You, you see things you want it. Lust of the flesh, which is lust. And then the pride of life. And it actually implies that the pride is, is sometimes the biggest of the dangers that we face. Um, and one sign of pride comes up in this passage where it talks about we could have made demands upon you because we were sent by God. We could have used that status we had as apostles to make demands. But instead, we were servants among you. And, and Jesus said, you know, the world, people of the world, what are they? They lord it over one another. They make demands upon one another. Not so with you. If you want to be great in my kingdom... You need to be the servant, even the slave of others. So, continuing on in this passage, I, I, this next section, we, I see three tests of ministry. Paul now contrasts, so he, given the things he doesn't do, now he starts talking about what he did do as he proclaimed the gospel. And so the first thing you see of how ministry should operate, it's, he shared lives, not just making someone a project. So he says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He's emphasizing the care that they had when they brought the gospel to the Thessalonians. And he goes so far as to compare himself to a nursing mother. Um, there's an in interesting textual variant in this passage. I don't know if you remember on Easter Sunday, I talked about how there are variants in the Bible, things that the Greek texts are a little different and I'm not sure of, but most of them are minor. And, and I, I just want to give you this as an example. It's in verse 7 where it says, we were gentle among you. There's two, two different textual variants. One is napion, which means infants. The other is epion, which means gentle, right? So they don't know technically which one it would be, but it does sound kind of weird to say we were infants among you like a nursing mother caring for an infant. So it makes more sense that it would be epion, not nepion. So we were gentle among you. That's, that's a bonus right there. No extra cost. Um, but the main point he's saying is we, we didn't make you a project, right? We were willing to share not only the gospel of God, but our very selves, our very lives with you. We opened our lives up to you when we shared. Sharing the gospel or teaching at Sunday school or doing the work of ministry is not about just conveying information. It's not just about, here, read this, see this. Um, it's about life connection. Um, the way to have an impact is to, to, to engage people in their lives there's an old saying, I'm sure you've heard it, people won't know how much you care until they know how much, they won't care how much you know. Let me, I should get this right. They won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
I would be interesting to hear from our teacher types, and I know some of them are at the kids now, those who taught this year, how well did Zoom teaching work this year, right? Over Zoom or, or Google Meets or whatever, you can convey information. But were you able to do that same idea of sharing your life in ministry? Um, when we share the gospel, that's what we're called to do. Now down to verse 9. Paul says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So another test of ministries were called to be sacrificial in our ministry, not demanding upon others. You see, Paul, when he got to the Thessalonians, they did not take up an offering, you know, among these people that they're trying to reach so that they could support themselves. Instead, they were doing um, probably tent making ministry. It doesn't say specifically, but they were working. And we know Paul was able to sew and make tents. So that he was working during the day so that they'd have their needs met so that they can preach during the evening times or on other worship times. Um, they came with a servant attitude, not a demanding one. I thought of a, a friend I have in ministry who uh, he is bivocational. And this, I think, will become increasingly common, especially for smaller churches and he was doing ministry in a poor part of the town. And he was working for a smaller church. We had about three churches that worked together on youth group stuff. And so his kids were with our kids on um, some of the trips we did. And, and that was a good thing. Um, so we got to know him. But, but he, he couldn't be quite as involved because during the week he was a garbage man. He'd drive into the big city, Columbus, and at 2 a.m., he would start work as a garbage man and work all night long and so that he could preach the gospel on Sunday mornings. And that's a sign of, of servanthood. Um, alas, he, he was hit by a drunk driver. Um, I forget if it was while he was working or on his way to work. And so, anyways, he gave his life in service because he was serving God even as he was working that 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 um, that job. That's the call. The last section is talks about the high calling of the kingdom. It says, You are witnesses and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our contact towards you. And it says, For you know how like a father with his children. Interesting. He compared himself to a nursing mother. And now he's comparing himself to a father. And, and as a father, what's he doing? He's exhorting them to walk in a manner and charging them to walk in a manner worthy of God and who calls you into his kingdom. This is, he was challenging them, even as he worked among them, to live up to the, the, the high calling of God's kingdom. And the thing is, he can only do that because of verse 10. He can only do that because they themselves were living it in front of them says, you know, you, you saw, you were witnesses to how we lived in your midst. We lived up to the holiness and righteous and blameless. Now, because God is in your life, live up to that too. Live up to the kingdom calling that's in your life. Friends, we can't lead someone beyond where we are in our faith. If we're not living it in our life, we're not going to have a positive impact in those others. I... I remember um, 
I'll come to that later. It, it, it doesn't work too well to share Jesus if, if our life is full of anger or full of unrighteousness or full of whatever. People are like, I don't know. I'm not sure I believe what you say because I see this in you. Not that we're ever perfect, but we've got to be growing towards Christ, growing in holiness. We've got to live up to that high calling. These three ministry tests, brothers and sisters, apply to, to all of us. It's not just whether you're an ordained pastor. They apply if you're a Sunday school teacher. They apply if you're just hoping to share Jesus with a friend or a family member. They are for all of us. And just to, to give you three things, um, it starts with being convinced. Convinced that Jesus Christ is the best thing that's ever happened to me. When you're convinced Jesus is the best thing, that's ever happened to you. You want others to experience him, to know him. Um, Jesus is the one way to life. He pours out the living water that satisfies our very souls. And because of that, we're willing to share our lives with people, not just hand them a tract. We're willing to, to walk with them that they might learn how to follow Jesus and walk with him. So it starts with that. It starts with being convinced. It then moves to being called. You have been called into his service. If you know Jesus, he's called you to himself, and then he calls you to, to the work of the kingdom. He has a purpose for you and your life. First of all, he wants to love you to love the people he puts in your path. You can't love everyone in the whole world, right? I love it when it says, I just love everyone in the whole world. No, you don't. Start with loving the people he puts in your path. Like the Good Samaritan story, right? Love the person lying on the road that needs help. Love the person God puts in front of you, even if they're not part of your normal crowd, your normal circle. Um, see them as sent by God. That's, that's, that's part of this calling. The other part is to find and to put into practice the role of service for which he's given you. You were made for something. And as we gather and regather at East Glenville um, Church, as we start to work and develop what we're doing here, just know this. He has a job for you. Whether it's grilling hot dogs for the picnic, whether it's working with the Sunday school kids, whether it's parking cars, he has a role, not just here in the church, but in the, the, the work of the kingdom. And so find the job. The, there's a joy in knowing and discovering the very reason for which you're made. There's a joy in knowing that. And so it starts with convinced, and then it moves to being called. And no, notice what I did there. They both start with C, right? Right? Yeah. And by pastor law, I have to give you a third C. It's, it's, they'll take away my card if I don't. Um, so then we got to step up to be committed, right? Convinced, called, then committed. That means living up to the high calling of the kingdom. We need to do that because people are watching. They're not just listening to our words. They're not just hearing our message. They're watching how we live. They're watching how we treat one another. They're watching what, what we do when we're challenged. They're watching what we do, how we respond when we get in a heated conversation. They're watching whether we own up to our failures. They're watching how we care for those who are hurting. They're watching. I remember the realization that hit me when I was in college and I was volunteering for Young Life as a college student. And, and it suddenly dawned on me 
that the life I was living in the dorm would have an impact on the, the volunteer work I was doing amongst the high school students in that area. I'm like, oh, wow. You mean if I'm getting wasted on the weekends or joining into all the stuff that's happening around me, that, that that might prevent me from doing a good work for these kids? They might, yeah. So I, I believe we're called to have that high calling, but not out of fear, but mostly because, completely because he is worthy. He is worth our life. He's worth living for and giving ourselves to. And if we trust him, with what we know of ourselves, there's no better way to live. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how it teaches us to serve you, to know you, to love you. I pray that for each person here, there's something that they heard that will take with them into the, the, the life that they're living and, and the ministry that they're doing. Lord, I believe you have given us and trusted us with your gospel Help us know how to share that and engage that with the people around us. We pray this all in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.